This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the For the Love Podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. I am so happy to like be here with you today. By the way, all of our episodes are also on YouTube in which I record me and my guest visiting and talking and discussing. So sometimes it is incredible to watch their body language and their facial expressions and see us interacting. So should you be a YouTube person Jump over to my channel over there and you'll get to see and hear this. Anyway, guys, it's a big day. It's a big day for me and the whole For the Love podcast team because we are kicking off a brand new series. This is always exciting for us. Anytime we kick off a new series, you can rest assured we have been talking about it and working on it and brainstorming it and workshopping it for months. And so we're always excited when we get to like bring it to you. It's ready. It's developed. And that is today. Today, our new series is called For the Love of Flipping the Script. Flipping the Script. Let me tell you what I mean by that. After a season of basically putting everything on hold, so many things that we've been accustomed to in the deep freeze, such a year of just turmoil and upheaval and disruption, we are going to be taking a look at how it's never too late and things have never even been too hard to change your life. And this is going to run the gamut for us during this whole series. So whether it's quitting the job that is sucking the soul like right out of you, all the way like to to growing and evolving in your beliefs, in your ideology, we are welcoming guests from all walks of life. And those guests are going to work us through how they have flipped the script in their own life in a lot of different buckets. And I think what you're going to discover is you can relate to virtually all of them. I know I I have. And so guess what? Guess who our first guest is? It's me. (laughs) Hi. I am your host and your guest, Jen Hatmaker. Never done this before. This is a first in the four-year run of the show. And Laura, the podcast producer, this was her idea. And she said, you know, Jen, nobody (laughs) that we can think of has flipped the script in such a dramatic way. Well, it's not really true. I mean, I'm sure somebody has a more dramatic story, but she said, you've done this. 
You've done this, you have flipped the script. Some of it you chose, some of it you was chosen for you, and you simply had to then live in that new script. And why don't you consider kicking off the series kind of with your own story and what you have learned and what you're still learning and kind of set the table for the tone of this entire series. And I said, yeah, yeah. I think for, I'm guessing for so many of us, it's just super easy. We default into our routines. I'm reading a lot of books right now on neuroscience and, and the, the biological composition of trauma, of change, of growth, of recovery. And it's very, very fascinating. One thing that I have learned is that our brains are wired, literally created to resist change, that we have a neurological signal to our bodies that says, this is unfamiliar, therefore dangerous right? This is unfamiliar, therefore abort, abort. Our brains naturally crave familiarity. They naturally crave patterns, predictability, a known path. And so it's no joke. Like when people say they hate change, they really do. They really do. Like we have to make some pretty conscious choices to override our operating systems rather to maybe just let's just start here think about change in a positive way maybe that's the very first step which is to say self change is not bad change is does not mean something's wrong change does not mean you were wrong change does not mean this is a bad idea change Sometimes those things are true, of course. Sometimes we were wrong. Sometimes things are bad. But also, there is this huge category of change that exists in a positive light that looks like growth, right? And possibility and innovation, discovery. Those are good changes, but our minds resist all change. So that's really what we're wanting to dial into on flipping the script. This deliberate intentional work to embrace change, right? Because every single one of us prefers homeostasis. We're, we're meant to. There's nothing wrong with us. We're meant to. That was an original design to keep us safe and secure and in a predictable environment so that when new things come in, we knew to be alarmed. But in the modern day context that you and I are in, not only is that not always useful anymore. It can be really harmful. It can keep us stuck. It can keep us lying to ourselves and others. It can keep us silent and sad and really missing out on life, kind of sleepwalking through life. And so where do we start here, right? That's exactly what we're going to be doing in the series. Where do we start? Do we just kick off transformation after something has impacted our lives? Do we change things overnight? Do we change things over the course of time? I don't think there's one right answer here, like spoiler alert, but we're going to look at all those possibilities, all the possibilities of ways in which we can embrace and lean into the work of change and why we should. So to kick it off, beloveds, I am going to talk for a little bit about my life and the ways I have permanently changed over the past few years, kind of a long view, 
last few years, a little bit of a shorter view, and then finally, primarily in this last calendar year, the most recent and monumental changes in my life, what I've learned, what I got right, what I got wrong, what I'm hoping to take with me into this next phase. And I thank you for letting me talk through this with you transparently. That is one thing I know I can count on, Avi, from my community is the permission to be genuine, to be authentic with you. I have I mean, definitely walked through sorrow, my personal sorrow with you over the last year. Uh, So you've kind of watched it in real time. And what you have enforced in me is not that, whoops, Jen, you knew it. You shouldn't have shared. It backfired. People used it against you. This weird little narrative I have in my head that people are going to use things against me. What? Like I'm in the CIA or something, like I'm a spy. I mean, what what does that mean? But rather, what your loving embrace and response to me this year has confirmed for me is that this is a beautiful community and that generally we value authenticity, even when it's really hard to hear or say that we can hold a lot of room for one another as each of us walks our own path here. And so just up front, I want to say, I'll just never get over this community. And I mean that so sincerely. Thank you for the millions of ways that you have encouraged my own personal growth and flourish and recovery instead of impeding it. All right, onward. So, okay, where do I start? Let me start from a, from a wide lens. Let me talk about some general ways that I began flipping the script in my own life, which did ultimately set the stage for me to both embrace and endure other changes that came down the pike. I think for me, from a wide lens perspective, I would first want to talk about the process of flipping the script in my life spiritually. That is really the backdrop to my entire life, all of it. And that was the construct in which I was raised, in which I was sent out, in which I have created my own work in the world and what matters to me, what I value. And so, you know, some of this you'll know, obviously, but let me, I'll just, I'll put it in one little package here. So I grew up, like a lot of you probably, I grew up in a really conservative, really traditional faith environment grew up Southern Baptist. And it's interesting to kind of watch that denomination absolutely self-destruct and implode right now. You probably don't keep up on all things SBC, but watching the predictable trajectory of that brand of theology and ideology and doctrine and hierarchy kind of culminate to where that denomination is right this minute is very telling for me as I look backward. I can see it now clearly, all those fingerprints on my own personal life, everything that was already baked into the system. It was there. It was prominent. I didn't know to question it at the time. I wouldn't have dared. I didn't even know we could do that. I didn't know we were allowed. But I see now its effects. So there's a lot of things I could talk about here. But I think one of them is that my understanding of what 
what it meant to be a Christian in this world. That's a big umbrella. What it means to be a woman, both inside a faith structure and out of it, and my understanding of God. I would say those are the three scripts that I have flipped in my life. Let's start with the first one. What it means to be a Christian in the world. Like, what does that mean? What are the implications of it? Because if it doesn't have any implications, why bother? Do you know what I mean? If it has no real effect on our lives, on our families, on our neighbors, on our communities, what even is it? It's a, it's a straw concept. So it matters to me. Like, what's on the other side of faith? What's on the other side of doctrine? What is the result of any given theology lived out in practical terms? That's how I measure it. Jesus gave it a little term. He called it fruit. So he's like, if it's good doctrine, if it's good theology, if it's good practice, it will bear good fruit. The end. If it's bad theology, if it's bad practice, if it's bad doctrine, it will bear bad fruit. So I took him at his word on that. And that is my, that is my metric. And so when I grew up, my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian in those, in this world, and I can only see this in hindsight, do understand that even though I felt this, this was my lived experience as a kid and a teenager and even a young adult growing up in this structure, I couldn't have clarified it to any degree, even really identified it or distinguished it from other possibilities. But the general ethos for me was kind of in a space of fear. So everything I really learned about God was from that angle. Everything was on a foundation of fear. So I was definitely afraid of God. God was taught to me as punitive, obviously, and arbitrary. I couldn't understand why God picked some things and not others. Why this thing could make God happy, but this thing couldn't. It was really hard to, to discern God's fickle nature. Why did, obviously, American Southern Baptists get selected for God's mercy and salvation, but other communities around the world didn't, right? So I was obviously afraid of God, certainly afraid of like hell, you know, eternal damnation, just because it's in my nature to please, afraid of displeasing God, like constantly positive. I was a huge spiritual disappointment, you know, for like wearing spaghetti straps or saying a curse word or having impure thoughts. And these were the things, these were our crucibles. And they gave me an unending sense of shame and guilt and fear. So I was afraid of God. And I had this sense, and it wasn't a sense. What am I saying? I was directly told and instructed my entire life that the salvation of the world was our responsibility, essentially, that if we were not aggressive and assertive evangelists constantly, basically that people's blood was on our hands, you know, that we had some secret that for some reason I couldn't figure out we had been granted. It was ours to tell everybody. And if we didn't, we'd answer for it one day. So there was even this thing like all along, which was one well, someday you'll stand in front of God. And even then, even there, he'll be disappointed in you. Like if somehow you make it through the gates, God is going to sit there and recite to you all the things you missed, all the things you got wrong, all the chances you squandered, and all your failures. And then reluctantly, God, he would let us in because he had to because Jesus, right? 
because Jesus somehow made it okay. And so God had to finally let in these wayward kids that he could barely stand. That's how it felt. I'm being a little dramatic, obvi, but that was how I felt. So I was scared for myself. I was scared for God. I was scared for all my classmates. I was scared for the, the remote tribes in the world who had never met a Southern Baptist and therefore didn't understand what we understood. I was definitely scared of authority, which of course, in my environment, were men only, white men. They were in charge because God. They were in charge because God. They were in charge because Bible. They were the head. And the rest of us were just the like secondary supporting cast. All the women and kids. I never saw a woman in leadership. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is what it means to be a woman. Okay, let me go back. I was scared of authority, which ironically, I never even imagined could be my own spiritual connection to God, that that was my own authority, that I had spiritual authority because I was beloved, (laughs) right? Because I was made beautifully and in a divine image with intuition and discernment. That, what, what is that? I never heard of that. I was taught your heart is deceitful and you cannot trust a thing it thinks. If your heart thinks it, it's probably bad. And so that parlayed for me into also, if your heart wants it, what obedience will look like here is a denial. No matter what it was, you fill in the blank of something that was happy or joyful or pleasurable or just a preference. And I understood it spiritually to mean if you are unwilling to deny that for God, you're not faithful right? That I guess following God in some way meant misery (laughs) and a complete abdication of everything that my heart cherishes, that my heart leans toward, that I love, that bring a lot of meaning to my life, that I just simply enjoy. Those, Those were off the table as not the way God operated in my world. So finally, what it meant to be a woman in this world. And like I mentioned, there were no women in leadership in true spiritual leadership, of course, they ran the nursery. Of course, they ran the kitchen. They ran the fellowship hall. They ran the VBS. But they did not have real spiritual authority, not in the church and not in their families, not in the world. Now, granted, they could be like a neurosurgeon. They could be an aerospace engineer. They could be CEOs of their companies but they could not preach. That is where their limits hit the wall, which I just accepted, by the way. I just accepted that as, I don't know, this is how they understand it. And they must be right. They'd never get this something this important wrong. I mean, they would never keep half of us subjugated erroneously, right? They would never do, this wouldn't be a power play. It wouldn't be for position. I guess they just got it right. And that's our lot in life. So flipping the script on those narratives has been probably the work of my previous, I'm going to say, I probably started this when I was somewhere between like 30 and 33, when my exposure to the world increased, when my understanding of the world got muddy, (laughs) when new ideas came in that didn't fit into my template at all. In fact, they were oppositional to it. 
but they just reeked of justice. And so some, I started having a cognitive dissonance, of course. The God that I understood seemed very keen on keeping white men in charge and keeping women and girls down and shamed and blamed and protecting hierarchy and being separate from the world. That was a huge narrative. Like the whole world was scary. All of it. The world, it's people. Our job was to grab all of our folks and helicopter out of it and stay over on our own God Island where they cannot corrupt us. And we would be immune to their seductions. And our kids would not go to their schools. And we would not fraternize with those neighbors. And so for me, it was really initially a sense of inequity that started scratching at the door. It was inequity. It was inequality. It was this deep sense of unfairness and oppression that whole people groups, whole communities, whole genders were locked out and all under the banner of biblical obedience. It just rung hollow for me. I couldn't figure it out, of course, because my perspective had really never been challenged. I grew up in a really homogenous way. Everybody around us was virtually the same, looked the same, thought the same, believed the same. It was very one note. And so I hadn't been personally deeply challenged by my community or my friends or neighbors, but it was internal. For me, it started here in my heart, like deeply spiritual very disturbed in my soul and in my heart. And so flipping the script on my faith has been the, an absolute reversal in my adult life for sure. Understanding that when you start pulling that thread, guys, that thing might unravel. If it is not absolutely 100% based in radical love, in incredible, all-inclusive mercy, in life, and love and possibility and abundance, then it is not real. <laughs> that is not the gospel. And so it took me a long time to learn that. Coming to a place where for me, faith is, first of all, this is real exciting, allowed for me to be somewhat mysterious. That was such a relief. Because of course, growing up in a faith system like mine, certainty was, re was rewarded questions or even dissent were couched as a lack of faith or a lack of obedience or ultimately heresy. That's the favorite word people like to call me, I'm a heretic. And so knowing that I was uh, literally incapable, and this is just a sane way to think about God. Like if you're a believer and you're a human, the only sane way to think about him is that we could just really never fully understand this, right? Like how could we? <laughs> I mean, how could we have formulated God down to all these like lists and templates? It's just silly. So knowing that God was allowed to remain mysterious to me in some ways was a big relief. That I could not have to use my mind to find some sort of script to make God fit the narrative I was handed. Does that make sense? I don't have to do that anymore. I didn't have to figure out how to get from A to B to C in a way that created less dissonance for me. I could just say, I don't know how that works. I don't know why that happened. I don't know what God thinks about that. I don't know how this works out in the end. I don't know what eternity really looks like. I don't, whoo, huge relief. And then to deeply discover that God has always been unambiguously on the side of the oppressed and that injustice 
matters to him and that his beautiful world that he imagined that he sent Jesus to teach us about is like a paradise, honestly, where everyone is safe. Everyone is cherished. Everyone is deeply beloved. They are well cared for. They're connected. No one is alone. No one is going hungry or going without because we share. There are no man-made hierarchies that keep certain people on top and others on bottom simply by virtue of gender or skin color or sexual orientation or nationality. That's just not real. That's invented. That's a, that's invented. What a relief. I've always had this real deep sense of God and that he is good. And so I just didn't ever know how to make sense of these two versions of God. The one that I felt like my heart knew and then the one that I was taught. So that script is a massive flip for me and it not without its cost. That has caused a great number of people discomfort and anger, frustration, sadness, because again, we're not wired to like change. Change runs up the flagpole and suggests to us, this is bad. This is bad. Something here is wrong. When in fact, the way that I see change inside a faith structure is that it is growth. I do not understand God the same way now at 46 that I understood him at 16. And thank God. (laughs) Thank God. When I wore my Christian t-shirts to school and made people feel like crap about their lives. So I always deeply love and cherish and respect my community, my listeners and my readers who are going through a spiritual and I know exactly how it feels. I know some of the disruptions that it causes in your families and your communities, sometimes in your churches and also even in your own heart, like the sense, am I allowed to change my mind? Am I allowed to grow? Am I allowed to say, I don't think just because you said that to me does not make it true. Just because a person who has put themselves in spiritual authority preaches something doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it true. We get to have some of our own spiritual authority because God says we do, that we are a living temple. Like me, I'm I'm the whole temple from head to toe. I am the temple of the spirit of God. That's a pretty important structure. And so, so are you. Anyway, that was a huge way that my life has evolved. And I hope for the better. I think that those shifts have made me more generous and empathetic and kind. Certainly, they have made me more brave and courageous, which is a great way to live. Because at that point, you have to stand with and for everyone who a small, limited faith system has kept out, which creates a lot of anger and a lot of opposition. So made me more courageous and also just giving me a deep sense of satisfaction in being a person who loves God. Like if God were the God that we just see right now, you know, the one, the one that's been attached to a political party and a political agenda. And I just wouldn't, I wouldn't have any interest in following him. If that were true, I wouldn't, those connections would be far too destructive and fragile for me to keep working at. Like that, that would just disintegrate for me. And so I feel such a, such a sense of like renewed joy and hope and commitment to God and to Jesus simply because I have learned that God is not who I was 
told he was. So faith is beautiful to me again. I feel like I got it back. I feel like I got to reclaim it and plant it in some different soil where it is flourished and it's continuing to flourish. Okay, let's move on. More recently, I am right at the year mark of losing a marriage. So talk about a script. I mean, I definitely had a marriage script, which I received loud and clear from the time I was little. I knew exactly what marriage was supposed to look like, what a man's role inside of it was, what the wife's role was inside of it was, what would be considered pleasing to the church in terms of function and visibility, all of it. I definitely received a script on that, which could be the reason that I got married when I was 19. (laughs) What in the world? You guys, Caleb Hatmaker is 19. And if he told me today that he was getting married, I would run him over with my car. And that is like literal. I'm not exaggerating. I'd miss him, but at least he wouldn't be married. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. That's a lot here. And let me say this before I move into this script that has been flipped for me. This isn't one that I chose to to flip. That in one million ways, which I know you're going to understand this when I say it, I wouldn't change it because, of course, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't know how to think like that. That that is not a calculus that makes sense to me. Because if I say, I wish I could go back and not have gotten married in college, like all my peers did too, by the way, we were at a really small private Baptist university where that was absolutely the norm. Because if I said that, if I said, I wish I would have given the gift of my own young adulthood to myself. I wish I would have grown up. I wish I would have been more mature and understand the level of that commitment and what it meant for the long haul and who I was going to be inside that relationship. Then what that would also mean is I don't have anything I have now. I don't have my kids. I don't have my story and I don't have my friends and I don't have my memories. So that just doesn't make sense to me. That's not a game I want to play. And it's not a game I'm playing. I don't have some, I wish it could all be different valve here because I love my life. I love my people and I love my story. I really do. I'm, it's the one that I have. It's the one that I know. And it's the one I'm embedded in. And so I don't know, I don't even know how to, I wouldn't want to wish it away, even knowing what I know now. So that's not it. We're not heading there. This isn't like a, I would flip the script and not get married at 19. (laughs) I would learn who I was, right? I would chart my own course for a while. That's not this. So we were married for 26 years. So that is a very long time to live inside a script, right? If that's what we're talking about here, these sort of handed to us storylines, where some of the, you know, details would change from circumstance to circumstance, but in general, the plot points are set, right? It's a really, really long time to live in a a certain script, and especially ours where you know, Brandon was a pastor and thus I was a pastor's wife, which is a whole thing. So we had this additional layer of expectations on top of our marriage and leadership expectations from a visibility standpoint. Also a very prescribed script. What does a pastor look like and what does his family look like? 
What does the pastor look like? What does this marriage look like? Very prescribed. And so I could just really only talk about myself now, which is what are some of the storylines that I both learned and practiced and protected and perpetuated really inside that script for that many years, 26 years, my entire adult life. I mean, 19 year old bride, I wasn't even an adult practically when I got married. So my entire adult life has been inside this. And so I'm having lost my marriage. I've been forced into a lot of examination. And frankly, this was examination that was worthy of my attention, of our attention a long time ago. And so if I have any regret, it is deeply around that, that abdication of personal responsibility, of a sincere account of not what I wanted the script to be, but what it was. Do you know what I mean? The difference? There's the, there's the thing that I want a thing to be, and then there's what it is. I have a very high capacity to endure that cognitive dissonance because I want it to be what I want it to be so badly. Am I talking in circles here? Like the way I want it to look is so strong that I actually developed a skill set to lie to my own self, to the people that love me the most, to my own partner, and just pretend that it is what I want it to be. Pretend that I am who I want to be, that I am who I aspire to be inside my own marriage as a wife. I prefer that also. I prefer how I want that to be than how it was. So having been forced at this point to now deeply look in the rearview mirror as a postmortem, because you don't lose a marriage after that many years and it not just cause an absolute implosion of every single thing you know, you say, you do, you think, you believe, you experience, you talk about, you admit. And that has been a real heavy, but a good lift for me this year. I ran straight to therapy because obviously I just didn't even know where to start. I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I'd never been an adult by myself ever. Not one day in my life. I have five kids. And so I started doing this emotional work a year ago, which counselors are the worst. Like, they don't let you just walk in the door and blame somebody else for everything, which is sucks of them. You know, that's why we pay them. And so that was real disappointing to discover that they're, they keep the mirror pretty laser focused on you. So boo on that. But I began to have to look at my own patterns, some of the, the lines to the script that I wrote. And it was jarring, right? Really, I've really had to also work on self-forgiveness here. Because of course, those are the things that you go up and say, I wish I could change that. I wish I, I wish I could change the way we communicated. I wish I could change the way I responded. I wish I could change the way I understood conflict. I wish I could change the way that I was willing to be transparent or vulnerable. I wish I could change the way I perceived tension. For me, it was perceived as the tension means the tension is wrong. Not that the tension is signaling that something else is wrong, 
right? So tension, conflict, these can be a really lovely invitation to an important conversation, right? It's just the first step. It's the first step of saying something here is rubbing rather than avoid it because it's signaling that the tension itself is bad. It's really just a a guidepost that there's something else to deal with. So there's something behind it that matters more. And that's something I've learned this year. I've worked, I don't have a marriage anymore and I don't have a partner. And so I have worked on this a lot with the kids and practicing new conflict resolution skills with them and practicing really just communication skills with them. How many times I have told them in the last calendar year, well, a million things, my counselors just just changing so many things about the way I perceive people and relationships, but uh, you know what? I was wrong about that. Or my instinct is very masculine that I have an instinct to fix things. And I know I'm painting with a wide brush here, but I do, I have a fix it mentality and a solve it mentality. Cause again, see previous statement to me, tension equals bad, hard equals bad for me. That's a lifelong belief that I'm having to overturn right now, that if it is hard, something is wrong about it. And so thus, I have always wanted to avoid pain and conflict and really even suffering, not just for my own self, but for anybody else I like. And so my kids' suffering has generally been my cue to step in and fix it or problem solve it, brainstorm it. And so, you know, I'm practicing saying with them right now, this hard thing that you were telling me is just true. I wish it wasn't true. I am so sorry for how hard this feels or how hard it is. And I just want you to know I'm right here with you in it. I feel the same way. I'm hurting too. I'm hurting with you. I'm hurting for you. I'm hurting in the same exact sense. And we'll just get through this together. That's new for me, which is just being with somebody in their pain. That's new. I'm practicing making conflict right when I got it wrong the first time. I mean, this is just human, right? Always been hard for me. And so a billion times I have gone back to a kid and said, did not respond in a way that I'm proud of. And I'm asking you forgiveness. And here's what I want to say. This is what I would have said if I had gotten it right the first time. And so generally for me, I'm having to learn how to quiet the alarm bell that sounds inside of my heart when something is skewing sideways, whether it's something inside a relationship or if it's something in my own experience or just something simply that somebody I love is experiencing. Either way, I'm learning that it is not something to run away from or withdraw from, but rather to lean into through just past the tension, just past the discomfort, even past the disagreement or the, you know, the contention into something that promotes a stronger, truer connection, more and more authentic vulnerability, repair, this possibility of being heard and being seen. And so that's, that's work I'm working on. I'm also working on this sense of trusting myself, which I mentioned this earlier inside my spiritual construct, which is just that I was obviously taught the heart is a deceitful mess. You're a mess. If you think it, believe it, or want it, something's bad about it. You are not a trustworthy human being. And so at all times, you should be highly cynical 
about every thought you have. How are we supposed to get through the day? Which And the sad irony here is that God, I believe, created us with this deep sense of intuition and, and inner wisdom, right? Like we're made that way. We're meant to be discerning in our own lives. And so, oh, the fact that we got that one wrong and raised up generation after generation of people who didn't trust their own instincts makes me sad. So this, of course, again, I'm looking in the rearview mirror now and I'm able to see with clear eyes because I have no choice. With clear eyes, all the places inside 26 years where my instincts my intuition, and even just my basic wisdom were trying to tell me something. And this runs the gamut of things. It's not, there was a lot of alarm bells and a lot of things saying, this doesn't feel good, does it? This isn't right. This isn't normal. This can be better. You can do better here. Your response, just it's a huge, huge pile of responses and constructs and dynamics and patterns that every good thing in me was saying, this requires your attention and you can trust yourself here. You can trust your instinct here because our instincts really have only one agenda and that is to keep us safe and protected. That's it. That's what our intuition is. That's what our bodies do for us. So a huge change in my life this last year has been not only learning to trust myself, to believe myself, to believe what I know, really just to believe what I know. I've had to retrain my friends. They would tell you this, that I was giving them an instinct early last year. And they were like, there's no way you're right about that. I'm like, I'm just telling you that I am. And they're like, you're wrong. And so even now when something is looks this way and I'm saying, I don't think that's, I think this is what it is. My friends now say to me, we believe you because you've been right. (laughs) You've been right the last 25 times we told you you weren't. And so, so I'm learning to trust myself. And a deep portion of that is located in, in my own body. I've talked about this quite a bit, but for the longest time, I just envisioned my body as just the carrier of my brain. My body carried my brain around And it was an unfortunate container, right? And so I've been doing work on this for a few years. This is not just this last year, but this last year has put it to the test, which is my body is me. My body is not just carrying me around. My my body is is me. I've you know referenced Dr. Hillary McBride many, many times, who taught me to call my body a her and a she, that she is forever on my side, that she has given me every good experience I have ever experienced, that her only desire is to keep me safe. That's it. She has no agenda with me. She's not trying to lie to me. She is not trying to manipulate me. When my body gives me an instinct, an intuition, a signal, it is for my good. So learning to like live like in the pocket of my body, I've been learning that in my brain for the last probably three years. I learned it in my body this year. And that is a steep learning curve because every message that we have ever received as both girls and women and people of faith is that our bodies are untrustworthy. And so this takes a ton of work for me, just a ton. 
is a huge lift for me. But now I deeply, I'm real proud of myself if I can say that, like the amount of times I am so gentle and good to my body is 10 million times all the previous years combined. Like the amount of times I put my hands over my heart and I say to myself, you are good. You are safe. I care. We are going to protect ourselves. The amount of times I put my arms around my own self like this and hold my own self tight and say, I believe you and you are good and you are strong and you have got us, you got us through this year. You got us to this day. It's a practice that has deeply changed me. And so I'm grateful for that. Like that is something that has come out of this last catastrophic year, the sense of autonomy and agency over my own thoughts, my own beliefs, my own power, my own capability. Lord, the stuff I have learned to do this year. Oh my gosh. I can't even tell you. It'd fill a million books. I have done so many things independently this year that I have never done because I had to. But then it turns out I could. That's just it. Our limiting beliefs sincerely keep us away from flourishing. It never was that I couldn't do those things or I didn't know how or I couldn't learn how or I was incompetent or that it would be too much for me because turns out I can do it. I can do it. I can learn it. I can practice it. I can figure it out. And guys, I'm good at it. Like I'm really, I have taken control of my own finances, of my own personal management, of my business, of legacy, of so many things. And I'm so proud of what I have figured out how to do. Such a sloppy mess at the beginning. So don't imagine that I walked into my new divorce life, like fully formed, just like kicking ass and taking names. I did not. I cried a lot. I was scared. I asked 20 million questions. I treated it like a job and it really was. The amount of hours I spent learning, managing, retooling, reformatting, reorganizing, figuring out, meeting with people, sitting under experts who were helping me sort it through. And I can just tell you here at the year mark, I'm like so proud of that work. So proud of it. I hated it when people told me last summer that I would be okay. Okay. I liked that part. I needed somebody to tell me I was going to be okay. I actually thought I was going to die last year. I did not think the clouds would ever part. I did not think I'd ever see the sun again. I could not even see a shred of light last year. So I did like when people said, please believe me that you're going to be okay and that you're going to get better. But I did not like when they said, you're going to learn some things from this that you will not have been able to learn any other way. And you're going to be thankful for them. I'm like, the hell I am. I am not going to be thankful for this. I am not going to be happy about this. I'm not going to be grateful for anything that happens from this moment forward. So forget that. And here I am at the year mark going, damn it. It's true. It's true. I have now experienced scorched earth in a huge plot of my life, a huge section, absolute scorched earth. And now new life is rising up through those ashes, just like God always said it would. Those things had to burn or it would never go. They would never grow. Never. I'd have kept some things, but I would have forfeited others. Does that make sense? 
I would have hung on to a version of marriage that I was clinging to with all my life. Just wanted it so much. And I would never have experienced new life in those places like I'm experiencing now. And I'm only at the year mark. Where am I going to be next year? Where am I going to be in five years? It actually gives me hope now. That's not just like a reminder of how long I have to go. That's how it felt last year. Last year when people said that to me, I was like, I, I can't. I mean, what? I cannot live like this in this sort of sorrow and misery for very long. But now I know, oh, it will come. And I can make it. And I will get there. And this will continue an uptick on the trajectory. I know that now. I know, I know what I'm capable of now. I know what God is capable of now. I know what's possible. And I guess that's just the hugest victory I could ever hope for. So I want to say one last thing. If you follow me on social media, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I was dreaming again, right? That this script has been flipped and I have continued to flip it in new ways. So maybe I didn't select the first flip, but I have selected a bunch since. And I'm at that place in my recovery that I know I'm healing because I'm dreaming again. My, my mind is filling up with new ideas and things that I want to build and create, things I want to do in the world. I'm like, ah, oh, signs of life, right? Signs of life. I'm finally able to transfer some energy to those beautiful and wonderful things that I've always been able to do. So. I have this vision and it's very half-baked. I mean, this is absolutely undeveloped. But the question I asked myself was, okay, dreamer. All right, girl, you're in a new script. Here you are. What are you going to do? Here you are. What are you going to do? So I asked myself, what do you love? Well, as you know, I love my people so desperately, so deeply. I love my people. I love gathering I love hosting and having people near me in my space. I love food. I love what happens around a table. I love bringing together very people who love each other and are deeply familiar. And I also love bringing together people who are interesting thinkers and leaders and creators and innovators to learn from one another and to brainstorm and to collaborate. And so I built, <laughs> I built a table in my backyard. It's going to be the site of so many beautiful things. It's beautiful. It seats 28 people. It has a beautiful serving bar, pergola. It's gorgeous. It's strung with twinkle lights. My friend Nathan custom built the table from scratch, five feet wide. <laughs> it can host every manner of platter and glass, and plate, and person, and I'm going to fill that table. I'm going to fill it. I'm going to fill it with laughter. I'm going to fill it with beloved people. I'm going to fill it with old friends. I'm going to fill it with, fill it with new friends. I'm going to fill it with family. I'm going to fill it with neighbors. I'm going to fill it with thinkers and dreamers. I'm going to fill it with food people. It's just, I look at that table and I feel like here comes life. I know it's just a table. I know it's just a slab. I know it's just a pergola, but I look at it and I say to myself, here comes life. It's a new script and it's the one I'm in. 
So I'm going to write it. I'm going to write that script with gusto and with joy. I'm not going to spend my life in regret and sadness and anger and none of that. I just, it's just not my way. Like, I don't need a party. I don't need a parade. It's just not my way. And so those are the ways that I find myself in 2021 in brand new territory, brand new territory. So for you, as we begin this new series on flipping the script, I want to tell you, sweet and dear listener, that if you are having to rework parts of your life unexpectedly, I am your witness that sometimes scorched earth turns into new life. Can you lean into what is real? Can you lean into what is true? Can you admit to your own self what is genuine? Can you, can you face this season in the spirit of growth and possibility? Can you look forward instead of just backward? What can you take responsibility for? What can you imagine? What can you dream up? What can you be thankful for? Who can you be at the end of this? I believe that it is something spectacular, that it is someone resilient, stronger than you were before, wiser than you were before, kinder than you were before, braver than you were before. I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in us. God made us a resilient people because life is hard. It's hard for all of us. You aren't alone. You really aren't alone. I don't know anybody who hasn't suffered literally in the last one year. I really don't. I don't know anybody. So we're not alone. We're in this together. We have everything we need inside of us. So do you. So so welcome to this new series. My guests are going to walk us down this path. What they learned, what they discovered, what they chose, what was chosen for them, but what they decided to turn that into. And I think that you are going to be profoundly moved by it. I know that I have been. So I'm with some real superstars in this amazing series. So lucky me, as always, I get to listen and learn from just some of the best human beings on the planet. And I'm so delighted and grateful that I get to bring you these conversations week in and week out. It's my joy to do it. It really is. And Laura and Abby and her team and Amanda and I and our team, we just we don't get tired of putting our hand to this work. Okay. And we want it to constantly be meaningful for you and entertaining for you and useful. And so thank you for being a listener for well, all these years at this point. Oh my gosh. All these years. What a joy to serve you like this. Gosh, I'm feel so lucky. Come back next week. We kick it off with our second guest of the flipping the script series and you're going to love it guys much love to you have a great week and i'll see you next time